In the psychology research, you talk a lot about an internal versus an external locus of control. So do you think that life happens to you or do you think you have this internal locus of control where you're able to influence your experience? We know that, say, for instance, of depression, that normally one of the ways that you characterize depression is it oftentimes results in this external locus of control where you feel like you don't have control over that. And so I do think that that's part of the equation, right? Do you think that life happens to you or do you think that you're, you know, an active agent who's making this thing happen? And I think that goes back to this, you know, core stress issue, which is, you know, do you view these various scenarios that you find yourself in as empowering or limiting? What does it take to do the impossible? What does it take to level up your game like never before? What does it take for individuals, organizations for even institutions to achieve paradigm shifting nothing is ever the same again breakthroughs our mission is to decode the neurobiology of flow and cognitive peak performance access the minds of maverick scientists groundbreaking innovators and world-leading experts to understand what it takes to achieve ultimate human performance so you can feel your best perform your best and accomplish your boldest goals I'm your host, Rian Doris, and together with best-selling author Stephen Kotler, I present to you Flow Research Collective Radio. Hey there, Rian Doris here with Flow Research Collective Radio. Today, I'm excited because this episode features our very own Connor Murphy, Chief Science Officer here at the Flow Research Collective. Now, in today's episode, myself and Connor talk about stress. We go deep into the autonomic nervous system, what it is, what terms like parasympathetic and sympathetic mean, how you can use ice baths, skydiving, and extreme forms of exercise to up the threshold for what you perceive as stress and become more centered and grounded and stress resistant. And we also talk about the biology of mindset, how that works and how it relates to trauma and stress. So you're in for a treat. Connor is just a wealth of knowledge and information when it comes to flow, when it comes to peak performance, and when it comes to stress as a data scientist and a neuroscience expert he brings together just a really powerful blend and he's also a skydiver so that practical component really just adds another nice element to his knowledge so you're in for a real treat today it was a great conversation you're going to love hearing connor go deep on these topics now before we dive in i just want to quickly mention zero to dangerous zero to dangerous is our flagship peak performance training here at the Flow Research Collective. It's designed to help you reduce stress, increase focus, and start working at a far more productive level with more joy and ease. In Zero to Dangerous, you will work with our PhD level peak performance coaches, and they're gonna help you implement flow practices and protocols that will help you accomplish your biggest, boldest professional goals faster, in less time, and with greater ease, there are real habits and behavioral changes that you can implement that will help you unlock flow state with far more consistency and reliability so that it becomes something you have control over, something that you can actually drive yourself into as a state rather than something you hope you find yourself in. Being able to get into the zone of the click of a finger is 
what we want for you with Zero to Dangerous. So if you're interested in that, if you want to learn how to drive yourself into flow more consistently, then go to getmoreflow.com. That's getmoreflow.com. You can also find the clickable link in the show notes and just go there directly, pop an application through. We'll see if it's a fit. If it is, great. That's getmoreflow.com. Now let's jump into the episode with Connor. Connor Murphy, welcome to Flow Research Collective Radio. It is great to have you here. Thanks, Rian. I've been looking forward to this all week, so I'm really looking forward to diving into this. Good, good. Yeah, it's going to be fun. And I think the topics that we're going to cover are going to resonate a lot with people, especially during these times. And especially just yeah, due to some of the things people are dealing with day to day. So to kick us off, how do you conceptualize stress? It's a great question. It's a difficult question. I think it's helpful to look at two different studies. Both of these studies were huge in their scope. And so both of these studies had, you know, 10,000 plus participants in them. And so the first one is one of the best known studies in the field of psychology, which is the adverse childhood experiences studies. Basically, what this did is it took about 10,000 different people. It looked at a number of different categories of adverse childhood adversity. So that includes psychological trauma, that includes physical, sexual violence, etc. In this study, it found that for individuals who experience more than a few of these different categories of adversity, they had a 12-fold increase in health risks. And so this is depression, substance dependence, etc. This is one way of conceptualizing stress, is this idea that stress is really bad. There was a second study that was done. This was done specifically on the perception of stress. So for this study, it was also correlational in its approach. And so there were about 30,000 different participants in it. And what it did was it looked at not only the amount of stress that people were experiencing, but it also looked at whether those individuals perceived their stress as positive or limiting. Within this, they studied this cohort for about eight years, and they found that for those individuals who both had a high amount of stress and the perception that stress was bad, they had a 43% increase in premature death. And that's over this eight-year period of time. So that's a huge, huge increase. And so if we take a look at those two different studies, you know, some of the prevailing wisdom is that stress is bad. And we know that stress early on in development is inherently very, very bad. It has all sorts of developmental issues. But on the other hand, we also know that the way that we frame and think about stress is very, very important. When we think about stress, I think it's important to distinguish these two main approaches. And so what is the general mindset that we bring to stress? Do we view stress as something that's inherently bad, so we need a bunch of different relaxation techniques in order to be able to deal with stress? Or do we conceptualize stress as something that is inherently empowering? And we can go deep into both of these different perceptions of stress, but you can see that, especially in the early stress research, the main conception of stress was that it was bad. And there are all sorts of different studies that were done to this effect. You know, there's some common knowledge that, for instance, stress for a pregnant mother is very bad. But when that research was done, that was done on very extreme forms of stress in animal models. And so basically how some of that research was done was you take, let's say, a pregnant rat, you basically torture that rat. You put them through more stress than the vast majority of people would experience in their lives. And so 
with those animal models, that might look like periodically drowning that rat. And that might look like periodically providing these electric shocks, right? Like it's nothing short of torturous for that rat. And then they look at how this affects fetal development. And so one of the big questions within the stress research is not only what is your mindset of of stress, is it empowering or not, but it's also are these reference use cases that we use when we look at stress, are these actually valuable? So if we take a look at the adverse childhood experiences studies, you know, that looks at really bad stress very early on in development. We know that that's highly, highly problematic. But the vast majority of stress that people are experiencing on a day-to-day basis is a much, much more acute version of that. And so we can talk about some of that early childhood trauma, but we can also talk about, you know, stress on a day-to-day basis and how, if we conceptualize this in a different way, it actually has substantial impacts to our biology, to the way that we grow, to the way that we thrive, et cetera. Got loads of loads of questions off the back of that. It's a great starting point. It's interesting. As you were talking there, I was almost forgetting that I used to inherently think of stress as a bad thing and that most people do have an association with the word stress and negative immediately. But having kind of studied peak performance and understood stress, now I hear stress and it just sounds to me, my association with it is much more objective. You know, stress is exercise, stress is cold therapy, stress is, you know, challenging periods within the learning process. So to zoom out of either kind of positive or negative stress or even chronic and acute stress, what actually is stress biologically in and of itself? You know, what is actually underlying either stress that negatively impacts us or stress that, you know, helps us grow and develop? Yeah, it's a fascinating question. And this really harkens back to what is kind of a miss from a lot of the research that's done on stress. So if you think about the actual biology of stress, normally people talk about a stress response as being characterized by adrenaline and cortisol. We can go into a lot more detail into adrenaline and cortisol, but there's also a third compound that is overlooked in a lot of the stress research. And so when we talk about a stress response, it's helpful to differentiate uh, two main different biological processes that's, that are happening. And so if you, you know, want some good buzzwords for your next cocktail party, you have a slower response system, which is technically called the HPA axis. We can go into more detail if we want to go into more detail there. And there's a faster response system. And so this is called the SAM system. It's associated with sympathetic activation. And so this is a much faster response. Those two systems are intertwined. There's redundancy there, but we can look at those two main systems and those systems result in an increase in cortisol and an increase in adrenaline, respectively. So the HPA axis is largely responsible for this release of cortisol. When we think about a fast response, normally we associate adrenaline to that. That's part of the underlying biology of it. But what's really, really interesting is that there's this other compound called DHEA. DHEA is, I would say, a pretty understudied compound, all things considered. And so DHEA is also produced by the adrenals. Um, It's produced elsewhere in the body as well, but it's also part of your adrenal response, which is, you know, those 
think of them as like the party hats on top of your kidneys, right? That's where you're, you're generating a lot of the stress neurochemistry. But for DHEA, helps differentiate a positive stress response from a negative stress response. For instance, there's a lot of really, really interesting stress research that's coming out of Aliyah Crum's lab. And so she's out of Stanford. And the main goal of this lab is to look at the biological basis of mindsets, which is fascinating to think about. And so if you think about, you know, these general mindsets that we have, you can think about, you know, growth mindsets, which comes out of Carol Dweck's work that seems to be part of common parlance at this point. You can think of grits, which comes out of Angela Duckworth's work, which is the combination of passion and perseverance. And we know that grits is, for instance, a big predictor of whether or not somebody will actually make it through their West Point experience, right? And so West Point has just a very well-known reputation for having a high dropout rate. And so Angela Duxworth was originally looking at West Point grads and getting a sense for how you can predict whether or not those grads will actually complete what they're doing. And she found grit was underneath it. And so like those approaches to mindsets are absolutely fascinating. But what Aliyah Crum's lab was able to do was combine that mindset theory back to some of the underlying biology. One of the seminal studies that came out of her lab was something called the milkshake experiment, which was absolutely fascinating. So you take a cohort of people, you have them fast all night, and then you have them come into the lab. And when they come into the lab, you give them a milkshake. And that milkshake is either labeled as being indulgent or being sensible. And it has the number of calories on it. It has some other factoids in order to really drill down on this idea that what they're about to drink is either indulgent or it's, you know, sensible. And what they did was they took blood draws from those individuals to get a sense for how their sense of their hunger hormones responded to those milkshakes. And so they took this cohort of people, you know, they split them up, half of them got the indulgent one, half of them got the sensible one, they brought them back a little bit later, did the same thing, and they switched them. So if you got the sensible one on the first round, you got the indulgent one on the second round. And what they found was your hunger hormone response was proportionate to the expectations that you had. And so for those who had the indulgent milkshake, they had much more of a sense of satiety. This was quantified using this hunger hormone. And then if you had the sensible one, you were less satisfied afterwards as quantified by this hunger hormone. But here's the trick. They were the same milkshake. And so at the end of the day, like they basically just, you know, put a different label on that milkshake and the expectations that those individuals were having as to whether they were having the decadent treat or the one that was going to be good for them really shaped their actual underlying biology. And so this is what's so fascinating about the mindset research is it's one thing to say that grit is correlated to success or a growth mindset is correlated to success. But what was coming out of her work was, you know, to what degree does our expectations about reality actually manifest in our biology? So that was one of the early studies that she did. But she's also went on to do studies on this compound DHEA, which is why her work is so relevant to this field of stress. And so for somebody who is undergoing a stressful situation, normally you see if you have an adaptive stress response, you will see a spike in cortisol, a spike in adrenaline. But 
if you look at DHEA as well, you can actually see a healthier coping mechanism. And so instead of just looking at cortisol, for instance, you can look at the relationship between DHEA and cortisol. And this gives you something like an index for how that person is responding to that stress. And so the people who have more adaptive coping mechanisms to stress will have both DHEA and cortisol spiking. And so if you have a more adaptive response to stress, meaning you have, you're in a stressful situation and you're coping with it in a more effective way, you will see DHEA go up in conjunction with cortisol. And they've looked at this in a number of different domains. So they looked at this in, let's say, uh, people who are in the military, they're going through survival school, which, as you can imagine, is just a terrific amount of stress. And those individuals who had higher DHEA had lower rates of, say, dissociation as a response to that stressful situation. They correlated DHEA back to academic persistence. They correlated it back to adaptive coping with abused children. I think we should probably, you know, qualify that last study a little bit because that's kind of a huge, huge statement to make. But one of the motivating questions that we've looked at in a number of different ways here at Flow Research Collective has been, why do you encode some stressful situations as traumatic and some stressful situations as empowering? And that's a complex, complex equation. But for some people, they'll be under a stressful situation. They'll encode that as a PTSD, as a traumatic experience. Whereas for other people, they'll have a growth-oriented response to that same experience. And so this helps us to delineate these different types of stressful experiences and whether or not they are empowering or fundamentally limiting. Super interesting. So is it just mindset that determines whether the stressful event is experienced as limiting, like a trauma or empowering? Does that come down fundamentally to mindset? To what extent does, you know, the actual event itself, for example, you know, the difference between being mugged and doing a, you know, sickeningly difficult workout. Obviously, there's an external, more objective difference between those two events. To what extent is it based on the nature of the event? To what extent do you think it's based on mindset? It's, it's difficult to unravel those two things. We know that there is a relationship back to mindset. For a lot of the trauma research, will differentiate how people respond in that specific moment to that traumatic event. So for instance, if you're talking about trauma as a instance of physical abuse, in that case, the individuals who you know physically resist their assailant have a tendency to recover a lot more quickly than those who dissociate and don't do that. And so there can be aspects of this. It's also interesting to look at the biology of it. One of the biggest predictors for whether you're going to encode a situation as traumatic is the extent of your stress response when that situation first happens. For instance, one of the studies that they did was looking at hospitals. Now we're talking about a different form of trauma, which is you know physical trauma caused by, let's say, a traffic accident. So they took these individuals who were in the ER, they took urine samples from them and looked at cortisol and adrenaline within their urine. And what they found is for those individuals who had a much higher spike of adrenaline and cortisol, they had a much faster recovery and they had fewer instances of PTSD. 
So part of it goes back to this mindset issue. Part of it also goes back to, you know, what is this underlying biological response that's kind of hardwired? Because if you're in, you know, some sort of, you know, traumatic accident, this is something that you're having an initial response. You might not have had time to really process in, you know, had your mindset actually applied to the situation that you're in. And so it's kind of a mix of both things. But if you're looking at the different knobs and levers you can use in order to improve your relationship to stress, that mindset issue is one of the best tools you can use. It's interesting when you were mentioning the ACES study at the beginning versus the study around perception and its impact on stress. I was thinking about whether there's a difference between self-imposed stress or self-imposed stressors versus externally imposed stressors. There's that quote that you hear sometimes in kind of the self-help world, which is, you know, easy decisions, hard life, hard decisions, easy life. And so I wonder, you know, is there a difference between taking on stressors and doing so voluntarily versus, you know, undergoing stressors involuntarily due to external circumstances happening to you? Right. In the psychology research, you talk a lot about an internal versus an external locus of control. So do you think that life happens to you or do you think you have this internal locus of control where you're able to influence your experience? We know that, say, for instance, of depression, that normally one of the ways that you characterize depression is it oftentimes results in this external locus of control where you feel like you don't have control over that. And so I do think that that's part of the equation, right? Do you think that life happens to you or do you think that you're, you know, an active agent who's making this thing happen? And I think that goes back to this, you know, core stress issue, which is, you know, do you view these various scenarios that you find yourself in as empowering or limiting? In that mindset shift, I mean, we could talk about all different facets of mindset, but I do think that the point that you're harkening on is, you know, do you have an internal or external locus of control? And, you know, that's related back to this growth mindset, right? Do you have a growth mindset? Do you think you can, you know, change your life given enough time and effort? Or do you have a fixed mindset where you, you know, think that, you know, your fundamental qualities are fixed and there's no real way of changing them? Hey there, just going to interrupt. If you are a leader, a knowledge worker, or an entrepreneur, and you want to take your professional success to the next level while reclaiming time, space, and freedom within your personal life, then Zero to Dangerous may be a fit for you. Zero to Dangerous is our flagship peak performance training. You'll work one-on-one with our coaches. You'll go through our whole curriculum. You'll join a community of peak performers from all over the world. We're about seven or 800 strong at this point. It's an amazing group. So if that's of interest to you, go to getmoreflow.com, getmoreflow.com pop an application through, takes 30 seconds. We will be excited to speak with you to see whether it's a good fit. So that's getmoreflow.com. Uh, just one more question before we drop the ACES study piece, just to bring us back there for another second, because I'm sure this is something that's top of mind for people is, you know, what's the difference between trauma and stress? Is the trauma just the event that produces the stress response? And then, you know, is, is PTSD just essentially, you know, the hangover from that? How do you kind of differentiate between trauma and stress? Can you have a trauma occur without stress, with the absence of stress? Or, or how do you distinguish between those two buckets? 
it's a difficult distinction to make. Uh, in part of it depends on, you know, how are we describing or how are we defining these different terms? If you look at the PTSD research, one of the terms they use for defining stress is anything that keeps you from being fully present in this moment, which kind of makes sense as a, a definition, but that's also just an incredibly broad way of defining trauma. I think there are a number of different ways that you can look at it. One is, you know, maybe stress and trauma are on the same continuum, but stress is something like a microtraumatic event. I think another big distinction to make between those two terms is that trauma oftentimes exists in a very different reality for those people who are experiencing them. For instance, I think it's about a third of people who experience early childhood abuse have no recollection of it. And so they will have some sort of abuse, but they literally, because the way that we experience stress impacts memory, those individuals literally will not have a conscious, you know, memory of that thing. However, they will have kind of an embodied lived response to that thing. And so that way that traumatic experience kind of exists in its own reality, if you look at, I think it's Peter Levine. And some of these other trauma researchers who talk a lot about integration, because you're integrating these traumatic events. And so you're integrating these experiences that otherwise just kind of sit outside of your normal day-to-day -day reality. However, they still impact your reality in different ways. And so when we talk about stress, oftentimes we're talking about something that is maybe a little bit more muted compared to that compared to, you know, these macro traumas, you know, when we talk about the adverse childhood experiences studies, I mean, these are just incredible, incredible life events that have a huge impact on development. They have a huge impact on how reactive you are to different stressors. They have a huge effect on brain development. They have a huge effect on memory formation. And so those experiences are quite different from, you know, if you're going to the gym and working out, yes, you're putting stress on your system, but you're putting stress on your system in such a way that you expect to have that process of supercompensation, where you initially weaken the system, but through that process of supercompensation, you become stronger. That works in a bit of a different modality. That's interesting. It's interesting. Yeah, it does not break down, sound like, you know, trauma is firstly causal with respect to stress and also broader in that there's usually an event, a context, a perception, obviously, I think is an important piece of it as well. Whereas the stress response is, is just a, you know, a more direct or narrower overall concept or thing. So you mentioned the three big elements of the stress response biologically. We've got the slower response system, the HPA axis, cortisol off the back of that. Then secondly, we've got the SAM system, which is sympathetic activation with adrenaline. And then the third piece or compound, which comes out of the adrenals was DHEA. Is that pretty all-encompassing when it comes to the stress response? Or is there anything happening, anything else happening biologically that's worth touching on here? Yeah, I mean, each, going back to those systems, yeah. So it's, it's helpful to differentiate this fast and the slow response. There's a lot more complexity going on in there. And so the HPA access is kind of a series of chemical dominoes in a way. You know, we call it an axis because, you know, there's a series of different chemicals where each one, you know, kind of triggers the next one. 
And it also has this interesting feedback loop to it, where once you start to have elevated cortisol, you actually can start to terminate the HPA access. And so looking at these two different systems is really helpful. But one of the reasons why it's you know so helpful to differentiate these two is because you adapt differently to stress based upon which system you're in. And so with something like the HPA access, so this is your slower response, that cortisol response. And so what cortisol is doing there is first and foremost, making sure you have the energy resources to deal with the situation that you're in. And bear in mind that cortisol is part of your normal circadian rhythms. And so you use cortisol in the morning to wake up. It's kind of a necessary part of biological functioning. And people who have dysregulated cortisol responses have a number of different problems in their lives. And so it's, it's very much a necessary response to day-to-day living. But with that response, with the HPA access response, you actually habituate better to repeated stress. And so if you have the same stressor over and over and over again, you go through this process of habituation where that stress affects you less over time. With the SAM system, right, this faster adrenal response, we're able to habituate less to stress within that response. And so that's one of the big differences between the two that's really helpful to keep in mind. Whereas, you know, that immediate fast response you have to stress, a lot of that is hardwired. Take, for instance, this idea that, we have a tendency to have this hardwired response to spiders, right? Where we kind of hate spiders. I was hiking in Colorado not too long ago, and I was walking along, and all of a sudden I had a really strong stress response. And then I was kind of scanning my environment, and I'm like, why the hell is this happening? And then I realized that like, out of my peripheral vision, I had seen a root on the ground that looked so similar to a snake that I immediately encoded it as a snake had a stress response, and this was before my conscious mind got into the scenario. And so this happens, this is a a well-known effect where your amygdala responds to stress so quickly that you don't actually know what you're responding to until a little bit later. And the reason for that is you can regulate those different systems differently. But one of the ways that you regulate that immediate response is using your prefrontal cortex. And so you have that initial stress response. It's designed to be as quick as possible. And so it doesn't even go through conscious thought. And then all of a sudden, your conscious mind comes on on the scene and says, okay, what the hell happened? If this is a false alarm, let's calm down the stress response and we can start to recuperate from that a little bit. And so when it comes to those different systems, there's a ton of complexity. We can talk about the relaxation response as well, which is quite distinct from the stress response. In many ways, it operates as the opposing force to the stress response. So there's a ton of different complexity there. But in order to make things super practical so that people can actually use these systems, it's helpful to differentiate between how we respond to stress based upon these different pathways. So one of the key distinctions that you oftentimes see within the stress research is looking at this top-down process versus this bottom-up process. If you think about the way that you can effectively deal with stress, there are two main categories of interventions you can have. On the one hand, we have these mindset-based interventions. On the other hand, we have behavior-based interventions. And then maybe we could add in, you know, I don't know, pharmaceutical interventions or whatever else to that. But I think for the purpose of this conversation, it's really helpful to drill down on mindsets and it's really helpful to drill down on behaviors. 
And if you think about what's going on within these systems, the types of behaviors that you use in order to deal with stress fall into one of these two categories. Are you kind of targeting this top-down system? And so this would be practices like meditation, like anything that's promoting this observer effect over that stress response, that's going to be helping you capitalize upon this top-down system. So the saying in meditation is you're getting into the gap. And what that means is you're getting into the gap between when you have some sort of stimulus and you have a response to that stimulus. With mindfulness-based stress therapy or these other mindfulness-based approaches, what you're doing is you're improving that top-down system's ability to regulate your response to stress. The other main class of behaviors that you can use, you can think of them more as bottom-up behaviors. And so these are embodiment exercises. You know, this is your your um, yoga. The yoga might fall a little bit in the, into both categories because yoga also has a mindfulness component. But it's, it's yoga. It's the breathing exercises. It's the exercise. These are different ways that you can tap into that bottom-up response to stress in order to target that same system and help kind of reduce that overall reactivity you have to those stressful stimuli. So one of those, the top down, really, it sounds like is intercepting the stress response kind of as it's happening to an extent and um, attempting to attain equilibrium, you know, within their stress response, whereas bottom up practices are the ones you mentioned seem, at least from that description, to lower your baseline for what you would perceive as stress in the first place. Is that is that an accurate categorization where one is one is lowering or, or balancing the stress response once it's been activated, the top-down piece, with you know getting into the gap as you mentioned with mindfulness, and the other one is is lowering what you even perceive as a stressor in the first place. And you know, to ground the question with an example, one example I think of often is in very intense exercise. People talk about the fact that when they work out at a very, very intense level, like you know, elite athletes, or I'll give my brother as an example, he's a professional rugby player, some of the, the workouts they do are just beyond sickening. And as a result of that, there's a very significant and notable state of calm that holds with them outside of the workout itself, you know, for the rest of the day. And and so I, I know my brother, at least this is obviously an end to one example, but it would take a lot to activate a stress response in him potentially. And this is my question, because he, you know, just due to the nature of his career, he's doing so much in the bottom up category. Is that, is, do you think that's accurate or is that over, overly simplified to say that the top down impacts the stress response after it's been activated, bottom up kind of buffers against stress and what you perceive as stress in the first place? In a way, um, I, I can definitely see a way that that makes sense. There, there's also this idea that, you know, your brain is always communicating to the rest of your body and your body is always communicating back to the brain. And so what you're doing is you have kind of this two-way street. And so when you talk about, you know, the prefrontal cortex starting to modulate what's going on in these deeper brain structures in your stress response, you know, that's one way that your brain is starting to regulate your higher brain is starting to regulate some of these lower level responses. But also when you go through, say, different exercise activities, 
or different breathing activities, what you're doing is you're communicating to your brain that you're okay, right? You're, you're in a decent place. And so one example is really slow breathing because when you're stressed out, you know, you start to breathe a little bit faster. But if you intervene in that system by slowing down your breath, then it starts to have this calming response. And so with something like your brother, I've met your brother. He's not the best example because he is such a <laughs> <laughs> an N of one. Um, but it's it's interesting to think about that approach. And I've seen this, you know, time and time again in especially in the CrossFit approach to exercise, because that's probably very, very similar to what your brother is doing. And a lot of what you're doing in rigorous, rigorous exercise is you're trying to change your lactic acid threshold. People talk about, you know, within really intense exercise, they have this desire to throw up. And sometimes they do. It happens very rarely, but sometimes that happens. And so what's actually happening there is you're releasing so much lactic acid into your system. Eventually, it flips some switch somewhere that's like, oh, shit, I've been poisoned. And so now I have to basically, you know, vacate my stomach because that's, you know, my biological response to being poisoned. And so what your brother is doing in that situation is he's building his familiarity to highly stressful stimuli. It's a little bit different from a slow breathing exercise because slow breathing exercise is like, you know, hey, this is a signal that we're okay. And so I don't have to be as stressed out. Whereas, you know, the really intense exercise is always trying to push up that threshold a little bit so that you can exert yourself harder. And that's part of, you know, this process of metabolic conditioning is, you know, how can I push that threshold a little bit harder? And, you know, within sports psychology, you talk a lot about this zone of optimal functioning. This is kind of like the Goldilocks rule. You see this across any number of different domains, right? Like in flow, we talk about this challenge skill balance where your challenge has to be proportionate to the level of skill that you have. When it comes to uh, sports psychology, you talk about this zone of optimal functioning. And so that's, you know, how much physical stress can I put on the system? If it's too much physical stress, I get overwhelmed. I reach this point of muscle exhaustion or fatigue. And if it's not enough stress, then I'm not growing at the optimal rate. And so they're related ideas, but I think they're a little bit different too. So yeah, that's super, super interesting. It makes total sense with respect to the intense exercise. One of the things personally that I find the most helpful for buffering against stress and elevating that threshold, as you're mentioning, is a combination of battles with lactic acid, essentially through very intense exercise and long, regular ice baths. And both of those, now that you mention it, both of those practices are, are doing exactly what you referred to there as kind of elevating that threshold for stress. Are there any other activities that come to mind? One just came to mind for me, actually, as I was asking that question that's relevant to you, which is skydiving. But are there any other activities like that that elevate your threshold for you know, what you perceive or experience as stress? Well, you can look at that in so many different domains. I mean, any time that you're pushing yourself at the upper end of your skill level, you're going to run into that same dynamic, whether you're physically exerting yourself or whether you're, you know, people always say that public speaking is one of the things that they're most fearful of. And so public speaking events, you know, you're also pushing yourself in a similar way. So it, it really depends and so I think you can look at that in any number of different domains. In the stress research, you oftentimes differentiate between 
different behavioral responses that you have. And so these are different pleasurable activities. This is, you know, grabbing a drink with friends or whatever the case may be. That can also include spirituality as well. There's exercise, there are different relaxation techniques that are focusing on relaxation, and there's nutrition as well. And so those are the general categories uh, or some of the ways that people conceptualize of these different ways that we can deal with those different stress responses. When it comes to something like ice baths, you know, you are definitely pushing yourself in a particular way. I think ice baths are fantastic for grit training, especially because you are training yourself and having this nervous system response. And this is something that actually, I think I, I learned this initially from you, but by uh, Andrew Huberman, which is this idea that, you know, within cold therapy, this is an excellent, excellent way of training your nervous system because you're trying to signal this, what we'll call a challenge response. And we can go into a lot more detail with this, but you're, you're trying to develop this challenge response in the face of adversity. And so going a little bit more into this challenge response piece, if you think about the various different ways that you can respond to stress, everybody kind of knows about the fight or flight response. What's a little bit less known is this challenge response. And so to answer your question, maybe a little bit more directly, any time that you're in some situation that you find to be daunting, you have a stress response, right? You have kind of this elevation of these different uh, stress chemicals. You feel your heartbeat increasing. Maybe your breath starts to deepen. When you have that stress response, instead of going into fight or flight, many of these different practices, and skydiving is an excellent, excellent example of this, but so is cold therapy that challenge response that you have is similar to the stress response, but it's coupled with the signal that, oh, you're okay, you have this. And so it's this same stress response, but it's the ability to rise to the occasion and confront the adversity that faces you. And so in the flow research, there's, you know, talk about the same challenge versus fight or flight response. And you can see this if you map out cortisol. And so there's one study in particular done by Karina Pfeiffer, which looks at this bell-shaped curve of cortisol response. And so the main takeaway is that if you have too much cortisol in your system, it pushes you more into this fight or flight mode. So you're not able to have the same response, which is I'm under stress and I've got this, right? It's not the same as the challenge response. And so I think the goal in a lot of those different behaviors and for, you know, type A personalities, they're very, very attracted to that genre of different activities that allow them to explore their challenge response. It allows you to explore your ability to control and to maintain integrity in very, very challenging, challenging situations. I think that's one of the reasons why, you know, action sports are so both empowering and addictive is because we get addicted to this idea of, oh, there's a lot of uncertainty in these situations. There's a lot of risk. However, I've got this. And so that challenge response, you can look at this in any number of different domains. You know, Whatever your default activities are, you can always provoke a stress response by amplifying the stakes of what you do. And if you're constantly practicing this challenge response, then you're acclimating to that stress and you're growing over time. And if we look at the underlying biology of that, we see this chemical DHEA that seems to be part of, seems to be one of the main actors within this, I've got this signal that allows us to grow and deal with challenges. 
Super interesting. So I'm going to ask one more trauma question. You know, is trauma essentially a low baseline when it comes to different stressors or, or a lower threshold? Obviously, we're talking there about habits and practices and things like that that you can do to, to increase your threshold. What is PTSD or what is a, a kind of a persistent trauma response when it comes to encountering a stressful event? And, you know, an example that we can run with a little bit here would be someone maybe who was scolded by a teacher in front of a class in a really horrible way as a really young kid and who gets a flush of cortisol and adrenaline whenever they walk into a room that has, you know, lots of people in it, especially if those people all stop what they're doing and look at the person. So so what's happening there with trauma or with PTSD in relation to what we're talking about? What, what, what's the kind of the high level breakdown on the, the mechanism? It's difficult and it's complex and I'm not sure it's fully known, but I'll give you the best answer I can. And this kind of harkens back to the point that I raised before, which is you can predict whether somebody's going to have PTSD to a certain extent, right? Like, you know, they're, they're, they're always outliers. But one of the best predictors you can use is, you know, how much did you actually have that stress response? How much cortisol and adrenaline were actually in your system? And the people who have less cortisol and adrenaline in their system haven't completed that cycle yet. And so they do have a stronger traumatic response to that. And so that seems to be part of the equation. So part of the equation seems to be not fully having expressed, let's say, cortisol within that initial moment. Another aspect of this seems to be the DHEA. And so DHEA is a neurosteroid, which like your ears should pick up at the term neurosteroid because, you know, if you have... Uh, if you think about steroids for your brain, it's, I don't know, maybe one of the most exciting things you could possibly come up with. Um, but so like the, the level of DHEA response seems to be part of that. And then we've also talked a bit about internally here at Flow Research Collective, we've actually talked quite a bit about the endocannabinoid system. And so just for a quick level set, you know, the endocannabinoid system is the naturally occurring system within the human body that is activated by exogenous cannabinoids such as cannabis. And so the endocannabinoid system is an incredibly important autoregulatory system. It's responsible for all sorts of different mechanisms within the body. But one of the big ones is stress habituation and adverse memory eradication. And so what does that mean when we have the same stressful stimuli over and over and over again? We talked a little bit about how the HPA access, we're able to habituate to stress better than if we're dealing with that faster adrenal response or adrenaline response rather. So the endocannabinoid system is behind that process of habituating to stressful stimuli over time. It's also responsible for adverse memory eradication. And so what that means is if you have a really bad memory, if you have, you know, that situation you're describing in that classroom, somebody who has a non-PTSD response to that will start to eradicate that memory where it no longer has the same emotional influence over that individual. And so one of the hypotheses that we've been playing around with is that not only is this a function of the behavior in in cortisol, DHEA, and adrenaline, but it, it's also a function of how well your endocannabinoid system is functioning. So that's four 
different main neurochemicals. And so that's maybe a little bit more complicated than that, but that's four of the main ones. A fifth one you can look at if you want the really, really complex result is serotonin because serotonin has a strong reaction to stress and it allows us to be able to respond to those stressful stimuli as well. And so there, there are a number of different facets of this equation. And I won't say that, you know, we know everything about what's going on within it, but these seem to be some of the main actors within it. And if we can drill down into how we can basically promote each one of these different pathways in different ways, we can get a really, really comprehensive way of responding to stress. So Connor, that's making me think of something that you've mentioned to me in the past. It's a little bit of a segue back to what we were talking about previously, but the phrase you mentioned that I think WHOOP, the heart rate variability tracker wearable uses autonomic fitness. So where does the autonomic nervous system come into this whole picture? Obviously you mentioned the the SAM system, which relates to sympathetic activation. So there's a relationship there, but what is helpful for folks to know about the autonomic nervous system, how it works in relation to what we've been talking about, and then what is autonomic fitness, if you were to have to describe that? Right. It's a term that I absolutely love is this idea of autonomic fitness, where you're, you're training your nervous system in a certain way. And maybe it's helpful to start with what I view as one of the best paradigms for general fitness. And this actually comes out of our mutual friend, actually, our Rich Devinny, who was designing training programs for the Navy SEALs, was a Navy SEAL himself. And I was talking to him one day, and he was describing part of their training program. And what it involved was an all-out sprint on a treadmill, followed by a shooting exercise, followed by those individuals having to get their heart rate down within a certain threshold, which is fascinating if you think about it, because you're, you're basically working to some point of near exhaustion. Then you have to do an exercise that involves fine muscle movements, right? So you're aiming a firearm and you're shooting it. And then you're trying to ground your system and reduce your heart rate immediately afterwards. And I thought it was such a comprehensive way of viewing that exercise of fitness. Another sport that I've always loved is chess boxing. And so chess boxing is not when you, you know, duct tape some chess boards to your gloves and, you know, <laughs> go at it. Uh, but rather, it's um, you go through a round of boxing, then you go through a round of speed chess and a round of boxing and a round of speed chess. And if you lose the speed chess, you lose the match. And so you, you know, basically continue to play this game of chess over the course of your boxing match. Unfortunately, the sport didn't necessarily rise in popularity, let's just say. Um, but I always loved that mix of having to not only work out in such a way that is physically exhausting, but then also, you know, rely on your intellectual capacities in order to complete some sort of task. And so these different tools can kind of be viewed under this idea of autonomic fitness. And so going back to the cold plunge issue. And so with cold plunges, to what degree can you not only train yourself to undergo that, you know, pretty, you know, stressful, daunting stimuli, but to what degree can you also regulate, can you self-regulate your nervous system in the process? And so to what degree can you 
keep that fight or flight response at bay and, you know, maintain, let's say, slow, steady breathing, even in the face of all of that adverse stimuli. And so when it comes to something like the autonomic nervous system, so when we talk about the SAM access, that's looking mostly at the sympathetic branch of the nervous system, of the autonomic nervous system, which is kind of that upregulating stress response. The other complementary branch, that is the parasympathetic branch of the autonomic nervous system. And if you, say, look at, let's say, skydivers, which, as you know, is you know one of my favorite use cases for these kinds of things, if you take a look at skydivers, a experienced skydiver will still have a strong sympathetic response to the situation that they're in. However, they'll also have a parasympathetic signal as well. And so that's starting to modulate what's going on within the sympathetic nervous system. So within a stressful situation, it looks like there is a uh, immediate stress response. And if you go into flow, if you deal with that stressful situation in an adaptive way where you have this challenge response rather than this fight or flight response, you'll see this co-activation of the parasympathetic nervous system along with the sympathetic branch. And so this is one additional way of looking at the stress response. And so in addition to, you know, cortisol versus DHEA, this, this offers us another way of understanding how we're responding to a situation, whether it is just a sympathetic dominated response or whether we are modulating the sympathetic nervous system with a parasympathetic, which is more of a calming response to that stress signal. And it's worth mentioning that you can track different parts of this cascade with pretty incredible detail. And what you find just to make things really relevant for flow is like when we talk about flow, we talk about this movement from the struggle phase into the release phase, into the flow state itself, and uh, then into the recovery phase. And we call that the flow cycle. If you look really granularly at what's going on within that stress response, you almost always have the signal that's called the anticipatory stress signal. And so anytime before you start to relax, it appears as though you have an initial burst of a stress response before that relaxation process. And so we call that anticipatory stress. What it looks like is initially you have this norepinephrine response to what you're doing. There's a relaxation signal that comes that tends to be characterized by both endocannabinoids and nitric oxide. But you actually, before you go and relax, you have this initial stress response, which is basically a signal that says, hey, scan your environment, make sure everything's okay before you relax down into it. And so this is part of that sympathetic response, but it's the tail end of that initial stress response in the flow cycle before you go into that release phase within that flow cycle. And so it's this sudden escalation of stress. And then you have nitric oxide and endocannabinoids that kind of come on the scene and they start to counteract that initial norepinephrine stress signal. So I'm having fun asking you questions that grossly oversimplify things here. So I'm going to do it again. Your description of autonomic fitness, again, I keep coming back to the trauma piece, but is it fair to say that a PTSD-like condition or PTSD would be on one side of the spectrum with autonomic fitness and the ability to regulate one's nervous system 
in spite of, you know, stressful stimuli on the other end of a spectrum or that same spectrum. Think about that for a second. So with, with autonomic fitness, going back to the, the Navy SEAL training paradigm is high level of stress, physical or otherwise, and the ability to return yourself back to a healthy baseline afterwards. And so you can kind of think about this as a refractory period for stress. And so one way that you quantify, let's say, your nervous system's recovery or your body's recovery from, let's say, lifting weights is the speed with which you go back from the uh, back to your original heart rate baseline after, let's say, doing a bench press or something like that. So you do the bench press, you try and measure how long it takes to get you back to your normal heart rate afterwards. So if that's the way that we're kind of conceptualizing autonomic fitness, when it comes to something like trauma, I mean, trauma can deal trauma does is in part characterized by this dysregulation of the nervous system where we have an over reactivity to stimuli rather than a more adaptive one and so in a sense it's related back to this uh, same idea but with trauma i mean trauma is just such a different um, modality to be working with and so oftentimes when i think about stress I think about it less in terms of trauma and PTSD and more in terms of, you know, how we deal with day-to-day stressful situations, because I think those two scenarios, they might be on a similar spectrum, but I find it to be a lot more actionable and practical to look at stress on a micro level as a different modality than looking at stress at this, you know, larger macro capital T trauma level. Makes a ton of sense. It's a great, great answer. What are some of the things, some of the additional things people can do to develop autonomic fitness? I think if we think about different responses to stress, it's really helpful to develop a primary way of dealing with stress, depending on the situation that you're in. And so First and foremost, and I hope this conversation was basically illustrating this point, that stress isn't necessarily bad, right? It's about the way that we frame stress. And so I think first and foremost, what's important with stress is how do we actually view this overall? And so in terms of making this very practical, it's helpful to think about different reframing exercises that you can do. One of the reframing exercises, I know we talk about this, you know, within uh, Flow Research Collective's different courses, um, but one of the ones that we talk about is this process of reframing anxiety to excitement. And it's really helpful to understand the underlying mechanism of how this works. And so if you're anxious about a situation, I use this all the time when it comes to skydiving, because if somebody's going on one of their first skydives, whether they're doing a tandem jump where they're strapped to somebody else, or if they're a new student, there's always a lot of anxiety that goes along with that. And with anxiety, anxiety has a lot of similarities to excitement. And so the term that we use to describe this is that both anxiety and excitement are arousal congruent. And so what does that mean? It means if we take all of human emotions and we try and distill it down into two main variables, right? What are the two main fundamental 
axes that we could use if, say, we wanted to plot all human emotion onto one chart. And so generally speaking, in psychology research, you talk about valence and arousal. And so arousal is kind of the level of excitation you have within your system. Valence is whether you view that thing as positive or negative, it's the affect you have associated with it. And so it's whether you want to approach that thing or whether you want to distance yourself from that thing. And so all that to say is if you view any emotional scenario that you're in as you know being either high or low arousal and high or low valence, it allows you to see anxiety in a very different light. And so for anxiety, anxiety is high arousal because when you're anxious, you have a lot of energy and it's low valence, right? We don't like being anxious. Whereas excitement is also high arousal, but it's high valence as well. And so one of the things that you know we teach within our, our programs is this idea that you can really easily recast anxiety as excitement. And that's literally as easy as chanting, I'm excited, I'm excited, I'm excited. You don't have to use that framework. You don't have to use it out loud. You can use various different mantras instead or or however that works for you. But I use this all the time within skydiving because what it allows you to do is it allows you to take a student and you can change their relationship to their situation to make it empowering rather than limiting by giving them that one basic tool. And so one of the things I do is I, I coach skydivers. And in skydive coaching, it's it's fascinating to see that transition that students go through once they're like, oh, shit, you know, I'm basically using this tool in order to practice this challenge response in order to view this situation that would otherwise be anxiety inducing as something that is really enabling instead. Mm. And so on the mindset piece, that's one tool that you can practically use. Another tool is, you know, looking at the different ways that you generally conceptualize stress. One of the ideas that I really like to play around with is this idea that all of the successes in your life are, to a certain extent, attributable to how you acted in different stressful situations. And it can really change that perception of, you know, kind of pulling you out of the weeds and seeing, yes, this moment right now is stressful. However, you know, how I deal with this moment is going to be formative and how I deal with future moments. And so I think those different mindset shifts are really helpful. We could talk about some of the behaviors as well. A lot of those behaviors are kind of self-evident in in a certain way, but I think it's really helpful to have kind of a, a baseline mindset that you're reminding yourself of. And it's also helpful to have baseline behaviors that you can return to as well. And so if that baseline behavior for you is exercise and you find exercise to be really grounding, then, you know, having that as kind of your primary way of dealing with stress is incredibly valid. And having a social form of that is incredibly valid as well, because the so-called tendon befriend uh, response that you hear about sometimes, which is instead of having a fight or flight response, where the tender befriend response really evokes this desire to socialize and connect with other people, having a well-groomed way of kind of scratching that itch and having that predominantly oxytocin response to a stressful situation by connecting with other people, that's a big one as well. But really creating those defaults for whatever worked best for you and then kind of rehearsing those, having a primary way of doing that and then having secondary ways of doing that as well, I think is really, really important. Mm, that makes a ton of sense, Connor. So just a couple more quick questions that may be 
percolating in people's minds. One of the big things that comes up for folks when hearing about stress is chronic stress. And that definitely has a negative association with it. Well, what is chronic stress and how does it fit into this whole picture? Yeah, I mean, like the stats you always hear is the effects of long-term stress on the cardiovascular system or the effects of long-term stress on all-cause mortality, right? Which is, you know, dying for any reason. When it comes to chronic stress, I mean, once again, it really depends on what our outlook on that is. And so like we're designed to undergo stressful situations and to bounce back from those stressful situations. And so going back to the study that I, I cited right at the beginning, this perception of stress study. So when they controlled for all of these different factors, and so this was, you know, pre-existing health conditions, this was socioeconomic status, this was all of these different variables that you think would be correlated back to all-cause mortality. When they controlled for all of these different variables, what they found was, you know, the main contributing predictor of all-cause mortality caused by stress. So the main predictor of premature death was perception of stress. And so the individuals who had a high stress lifestyle, but viewed stress as fundamentally positive, actually had a lower mortality rate um, than the people who had a low stress uh, life. And so I think when it comes to something like chronic stress, just maintaining that mindset is very important. I think it's also really important to connect stress back to this idea of meaning, because those people who have more stressful lives also have a tendency to have more meaningful lives as well. And so being able to connect those two things is incredibly important. So for instance, with helping professionals, and so this is, you know, your teachers and your social workers, the people who are in helping professions that are normally quite emotionally taxing and have a really high burnout, right? For people who are in those domains, those individuals who have a higher sense of meaning have much lower burnout rate. And they also actually have more pain tolerance as well, which is fascinating to think about. And so if you have a higher sense of conviction, it's able to counteract some of those different aspects of stress. And so I think that's, you know, kind of dr further drilling down on this mindset idea of if you have a certain conviction, it does affect your biological reality. And the idea that chronic stress is bad, it's like, yes, you know, that, that chronic stress can be bad, but it really depends on that overall perception. And if instead your perception is, I'm going to put myself under the stress because it's for a greater good, because it's more in better alignment with the goals that I have in my life, then you're going to see much less of the negative side effects um, of stress, such as, you know, premature death. So how much better than that can it get? <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. That makes sense. And then, and then what about just to, to close the kind of definitional loop? What about acute stress? What's the, the difference there? Yes. Yeah, so, so, I mean, acute stress is, you know, stress that happens on a slower time or, or happens, um, you know, just once or only a couple of times, um, whereas chronic stress is, you know, stress over a, a longer period of time. With acute stress, you know, it, as long as you are, you know, generally, you know, a, a healthy, a well-adapted person, you're able to respond to those individual stressors well. And so when dealing with acute stress, 
it's really helpful to tap into those different, you know, habits that can be really helpful for alleviating stress. And those are, you know, the different, you know, tend and befriend tendencies of making sure that you have a strong sense of social connection. It's, you know, the, the, the diet and the exercise and the relaxation techniques and all of those good things. And so with acute stress, I think it falls under that same paradigm of you want the same you want similar behaviors and you want similar mindsets. And those behaviors and mindsets are going to um, allow you to be better adaptive in dealing with both acute stress and chronic stress. That makes total sense. Anything else, Connor, that you want to mention on the, the stress topic? I know we're definitely going to do a round two and, and go deeper on, on some of this stuff uh, and more as well. But anything else that you would want to leave folks with on these topics before we close out? Yeah, there's one paradigm that I, I just absolutely love for approaching stress. And this actually comes from the domain of meditation. And so many, many years ago, when I first started as a meditator, I was living in the city of Chicago at the time, um, and I was commuting to work each morning, and I was trying to establish this meditation practice. And it was quite difficult at first. Um, a little, like really the only time I had in my day was on my commute from the city of Chicago into the suburbs where I was working at the time. And so I would meditate on the train and it was incredibly difficult in part because, you know, starting meditation is hard and also in part because you have so much distraction around you. And one of the sayings that I stumbled across in the meditation community, I still don't know who to attribute this to, but one of the sayings that I stumbled across is that the world is your singing bowl. And so what does that mean, the world is your singing bowl? What that means is in meditation, oftentimes you use a singing bowl, which is normally associated with Tibetan uh, schools of meditation, but it's, you know, one of those bowls that you can uh, ring as the end of the session nears, or you can even play singing bowls as well. This is not only a tool that's used for, you know, ringing the end of a meditation session, but it's also used as a focusing agent. And as soon as I like heard this expression, I really latched onto it. Um, and so I would ride the train from Chicago into the suburbs each morning while meditating. And then anytime there was distraction there, um, I would remind myself that the world is your singing bowl. And I think that's such a healthy response to distraction and stress. And so if you think of stress as not just something that's you know happening to you, but something that empowers you um, by giving you a growth opportunity, you're able to really capitalize upon the different noise of the world in order to enhance your own view of the world. Maybe that's a good point to kind of, you know, leave this conversation on is a lot of what you're doing within stress is you're taking these stimuli, some of them you have control over, some of them you don't, but you're changing your relationship to them in such a way that they serve you rather than limiting you. And that's, I think, is the fundamental reframing, the fundamental mindset shift that allows you to physically change your biology. I mean, as we discussed, you know, this, this physically changes your biological response by transitioning it from fight or flight into this challenge response. And that fundamental shift is deeply empowering. This is how you, you know, continue on a growth path, on a learning path. And so, you know, that's the mantra that I use in the frame that I use over and over and over again, which is the world is your singing bowl. These things aren't just happening to you. These things are empowering for you. I love that. Yeah, it's a great, it's a great point to view every piece of stressful stimuli that you encounter as an opportunity 
to almost do a rep and build that autonomic fitness over time. Well, thanks. Thanks a ton, Connor. Pleasure to have you on. And I'm really excited to have our, our second chat very soon. Awesome. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. If what you've heard on Flow Research Collective Radio has been helpful, please consider doing us a solid and leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you are listening to this. Reviews help us connect to a wider audience so we can get these peak performance principles out to more people.